0: Pray with me. Heavenly Father and Lord, we thank you, God, that we do get to come together as your church this morning and we do get to behold the wondrous mystery. We know that we are not worthy of all that you are and all that you have done for us. And we at the same time just acknowledge that we're coming before the throne and We're crying out to you to reveal to us a little bit more of who you are and what you are, that you do this not because we have any merit in and of ourselves, but simply because you are a good and gracious God. So that's my request. That's our request this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and uh, take your copy of God's Word and you can turn in it to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, as we talk today about God's love for us, God's love for us. That's going to be page 814 in a pew Bible if you've got one of those close to you. So if you um, forgot to bring your copy of God's Word or don't own one, by the way, those pew Bibles are there, we replace those. So just, that's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, just take that thing home with you, um, Matthew chapter 9, page 814. So if you can find big number 9, um, we're going to be looking at uh, little number um, 9 as well in just a second. By the way, I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. So if you're guest with us, welcome. We're ecstatic that you're here with us. Um, I stand at the back door after the service, and I'd love to say hi to you uh, before you leave for today. Th- Today, today marks—you could probably guess by the garland and and and, and the wreath and all of that—today marks what Christians traditionally call the beginning of Advent. And Advent is a time when we, as the body of Christ, begin to focus ourselves through the reading of the Word, through the preaching of the Word, through the songs that we sing toward the event when we celebrate the incarnation of God. That event, of course, being the holiday that we call Christmas. If you don't know, Christmas is only four Sundays away from today. Hopefully you got all your Christmas shopping done uh, on Good Friday. If not, you've got Cyber Monday tomorrow to blow through all of your money, but in this these uh, five services of Advent, the goal of Advent is that we would just try to slow our hearts down, slow our lives down maybe a little bit, and just focus our hearts and our minds on the event of the birth of Jesus Christ. So my goal every week is that whatever we look at, it may not be an account directly tied to the birth of Jesus, but no matter what we look at, uh, my prayer is that God would use that scripture just to remind us of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior. And today, our first week, I want to remind you simply of God's love for you. And we're going to see that in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple. Before we look at that, just a little history on Freshwater. If you're new here, if you don't know, we've been meeting together on Sunday mornings for about three years. Um, We've been in this building for almost two years now. And and what we saw when we started was we started uh, seeing a lot of guests. And some of those guests were people just coming from, you know, other churches in town, just making sure we're not a cult or anything like that. And by the way, We are, if you've been wondering, completely and totally a cult, if you didn't know that. Um, But a lot of those, some of those people were, um, you know, coming because they just moved to town for a job or whatever, and what we decided was we wanted to have some type of a gift to give our guests uh, just as a, hey, thank you for coming, nice to meet you kind of thing. So uh, we could have given out coffee mugs, you know, that's pretty traditional. We could have given out some little... Plastic trinket, or you know, whatever that might be, whatever that thing could have been. Um, but ultimately, we decided on t shirts. And by the way, if you are a guest with us this morning, we have a t shirt waiting for you at the Connect table in the foyer. All you have to do is fill out your uh, Connect card on the inside of your worship guide, drop that off on your way out, and they'll hook you up with a t shirt for everybody in your party. It's really that easy. And when we started giving out those t shirts, we really didn't know how well that would go over, but in the last year, year and a half or so that we've been giving out those t-shirts, we have given out hundreds, hundreds of t-shirts. Like if I was to guess, I'd probably say that we've given out 400, maybe 500 t-shirts, which is pretty phenomenal, I think. I see them all over town. Some of you are wearing them this morning, which I think is pretty cool, and what makes them so noticeable and so appropriate is that they have on the front of them a very simple word and image that... Chris Crawford designed um, they say simply loved. It's all they say on the front of them. And what better for us to desire for you to be branded by than for you to go through life being reminded that you're loved. But I've discovered something. Just because a person wears a t-shirt that says loved that doesn't mean that they actually feel like they're loved. Does that make sense? In other words, just because we give our t-shirts out and they they say loved and just because we wear them loud and proud, that doesn't mean that we remind ourselves continually or even that we actually understand what it means to be loved by God. As a matter of fact, we could probably go as far as to say that a lot of people feel like they're not loved, they feel like there is no one that truly loves them and that there really are, are people who, who, who feel like there's nobody that desires them and that God has maybe even turned his back on them. So what we're looking at today is a, a small section of God's word that reminds us of such a simple, fundamental truth of Christianity, that simply being that you are loved. That's it. Just that you are loved. Now here's what's going on in the text that we're going to look at. The Gospel of Matthew is written, uh, many people would say, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that had been promised in the text, that he was the one to die and to take away our sins. He's the one promised to Abraham all the way back in the 12th chapter of the Bible. We're kind of in a section that is saturated with miracles, so it seems like it's emphasizing Jesus has power over nature, he has power even over the human body, which is a pretty cool thing to think about. And as a matter of fact, the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 through 8 is noted by Jesus healing a man that was crippled, who was confined to a bed and what you notice is very similar to what we saw working through the Gospel of John. Jesus did not get along well with the spiritual upper class if we were to call them that. And that's actually exactly what we see in our text. Beginning in verse 9, we see Jesus ministering to the people. He's showing them the love of God right alongside a whole group of kind of religious elites, we could almost tell them, who can't wrap their minds around the love of God. And I'm going to acknowledge that that may very well characterize a lot of us today. Religious, maybe raised in a Christian home to some extent. Zealous, um, Moral in a lot of different ways. We've got our outside put together well. We look like we've got it all together, but having never really felt and experienced and truly understood how absolutely impactful God's love is. So this morning, the text is going to show us just that. It's going to show you that you are. Loved. And actually, we're going to go ahead and we're going to dive into the text. I'll tell you that we're going to see three ways that God's love works in our lives. First, we're going to see that God's love draws all kinds of people. After that, we're going to see that God's love confronts or convicts all kinds of sin. And then finally, we'll see that God's love demands we admit our need. But we're going to see that first way first. God's love draws all kinds of people. Go ahead and look in your copy of God's Word at verse 9. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, he being Matthew, rose and followed him. Now I want you to notice a couple things just in that opening verse, that opening sentence before we get into this. First of all, notice that this is the same Matthew as the Matthew that is writing the gospel. So that's the same guy. And this account essentially is showing us how Matthew becomes a Christian. You'll also notice that Jesus tells Matthew to do the same thing that he told so many people um, that he ran into. He looks at Matthew and he says, follow me. You remember that's the same thing that Jesus said to the first disciples that he called, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. He looked at them on the beach of the Sea of the Galilee and he says, hey, follow me. You remember when we were finishing up the Gospel of John those last couple of weeks when we were looking at Peter, Jesus looked at Peter and what did he say? He told him to follow me. And by the way, this is why our mission as a church is to what? To help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. Because this is what it means to be a Christian. It is to follow the teachings of Christ. It is to be obedient to Christ. It is to bring people alongside us so that more people can follow Christ. What grabs our attention this morning is what we see in verse 10. Go ahead and look at verse 10 now in your copy of God's Word and see what it says. It says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now remember what I said. God's love draws all kinds of people. This is what I'm talking about when I say that. The text says that many tax collectors and sinners were hanging out with Christ. And let's stop there, and let's think about what the words tax collectors and sinners actually mean. I mean, a sinner is exactly what it sounds like. A sinner is, um, for us, we know that everybody's sinner, right? Every every single one of us has sinned against God. That includes uh, the person who's just doing everything that they can to, you know, make it through life and keep the lights on and pay their mortgage and, and, and pay for their truck and everything else, all the way up to the Pope, Every single one of us, every single one of us is a sinner. We have rejected God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray from our shepherd. We have disobeyed our creator. But tax collector is a little bit more narrowed in, isn't it? It's a little bit different for us to consider because we'll probably all admit that when we think of our most cherished government entity, like if I was to force you to choose one, you might say, well, you know, at least MoDOT keeps the roads nice for us and... Missouri Department of Conservation, at least they ensure that we have nice land to hunt on or to hike on or whatever. But I bet nobody says the Department of Revenue. And some of you work for the Department of Revenue. (laughs) Nobody says the IRS. You know, when the teacher's going around the third grade class asking the kids what they want to do when they grow up, nobody says, I want to grow up and take money from people. Nobody says that. Nobody does that. It's not the way that we work. As a matter of fact, Shasta and I, we were in Kansas this week, um, for Thanksgiving, visiting my new niece, we had um, something that we had forgot to pick up, so we go to Dollar General. Guess what? Dollar General has made it all the way into Kansas. We go to the local Dollar General. We pick up what we need it 's a dollar. We take it to the register, and it rings up as a dollar nine which i 'm flabbergasted. like nine percent tax rate. Are you kidding me? I mean, I was noticeably upset. If you would have taken my blood pressure, you would have seen a spike. Like, it really got my attention. Y'all are paying 9% sales tax, but none of us are just enthralled with the prospect of paying taxes, are we? Nobody is. Well, consider the tax collector 2,000 years ago. Here's what they were. They would have a booth set up in a high-traffic area, so maybe sitting outside of, you know, Target on uh, Black Friday... They'd have this booth set up where you would have to pay your taxes. And by the way, you're collecting taxes for the Roman government. So it's not even like you're collecting taxes for your own country, as Rome was the occupying force in the land. I mean, just imagine that some other country, imagine that Russia conquers the United States, and the U.S. people hate the Russians for occupying our country, yet some Americans begin working for the Russians. And they begin collecting taxes for the Russians. How would you feel about those people? Like, that's just happened. That war has just occurred. Well, you'd think, boy, they're traitors, aren't they? They're they're living against our country. They're they're aiding the enemy. And it's not like me in Dollar General, where how ridiculous would it be for me to get upset at the clerk? You know, all she's doing is doing her job. That wouldn't be appropriate at all. But 2,000 years ago, there was a name and a face associated with betrayal. And one of those names and one of those faces was Matthew. He's a tax collector. Which tells me that Jesus did not discriminate in what kind of people he told to follow him. And I would add that today Jesus does not discriminate in what kind of people he calls to follow him. They might be rich or poor. They might be educated or uneducated. They might be black, white, brown. Purple, rainbow, whatever, I don't know, whatever's out there. They might be Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party. They might be conservative. They might be liberal. They might be wherever they might be on the perceived scale of spiritual neediness. But Jesus was incredibly intentional about calling all different kinds of people. And when you think about Advent... And this day that is only a month away when we celebrate the birth of our Savior, I want you to remember that one day when we're gathered around the throne of God, worshiping God for all of eternity, you're going to see people from every different background that you can think of. You're going to see former prostitutes. You're going to see former thieves. You're going to see former white-collar criminals. You're going to see former adulterers. You're going to see even the formerly self-righteous. But the unifying detail is that they all had a time when Jesus called them to follow him. Because God's love draws all kinds of people. Secondly, not only does God's love draw all kinds of people, but now we see God's love confronts all kinds of sin. It confronts all kinds of sin. Because pick up now in verse 11 in your copy of God's word. What does verse 11 say? It says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now pause right there. Because the account no longer seems to really be about Matthew... It really seems to be now about um, uh, the, 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 the Pharisees. I mean, think about Matthew. Was his sin despicable in the eyes of the culture? Absolutely it was. But now we find a picture of people whose sin was despicable in the eyes of God. These men are called the Pharisees, aren't they? If you're new to Christianity or the Bible, realize that this group of men are a group of men that, that pop up over and over in the account of in, in God's Word and in the Gospels. Um, know that we meet some men who have a, a sin that is, is, is really despicable and really bad and that they think that they've, they've achieved some type of level of spiritual perfection. And just imagine this. In that country, there was a ruling class, kind of a spiritual ruling class. They were called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had two distinct groups in it. One of those groups was the Pharisees and one of those groups was the Sadducees. And they generally didn't get along with one another. They held some different doctrinal positions and the only time in the whole Bible when they actually came together and united was to kill Christ. But the Pharisees are the group that is referenced the most in the New Testament. And the Pharisees took the scriptures as being legitimate, but on top of the scriptures they placed a whole bunch of other rules and a whole bunch of other interpretations that a person was obligated to live by. And what this created was this created a group of, of, of people, these, these, these spiritual elites, who thought that if they obeyed all the rules, both the rules of Scripture as well as all these other rules that they just happened to make up on their own, they thought, literally, that they were spiritually perfect. So they thought that they had, by their own effort, reached the pinnacle of spiritual perfection. They were what we would refer to as self Righteous, that's what we would call them. And that's the mindset of these Pharisees. That's what they're thinking when they see Jesus hanging out with and evangelizing tax collectors and sinners. Their mindset is, why would you ever associate with people like that? They've got the same rules that we've got. If they wanted to follow them, they could, and they could be perfect like us. So when I say that God's love confronts all kinds of sin, I'm saying that God's love not only confronts greed... And it not only confronts adultery and it not only confronts pride and it not only confronts arrogance and some of the more flashy sins that seem to get the most attention, I'm saying that God goes after the most concealed and hidden of sins, the sins that reside deep in our hearts, the sins that don't necessarily get airtime on the evening news, the sin of thinking that we're good enough for God in and of ourselves and really the sin of thinking that we're better than other people. Now, you need to know that this takes many forms. It comes not only in the ultra-religious, but it comes in the hearts and the lives of average people just like you and I. We can fall into this exact same trap. And today, I don't know many people who think they're perfect, but I know a whole lot of people who think they're really not that bad. So case in point, I told this account a long time ago, which means that most of you weren't here, uh, but I got pulled over once. And when I say that I got pulled over once, I don't mean that I've only gotten pulled over once. I mean that there was one time in my life when I specifically got pulled over, and this time was in Sedalia. And if y'all don't know... um, Sedalia, there's a lot of hiding spots for cops. Are y'all aware of that? So when you're going through Sedalia, make sure you do the the, the speed limit and you really got to watch yourself in that town. And this will just be extra. I'm not even going to charge y'all for this one. But my dad gave me, whenever I was young, he gave me the perfect way to ensure that you never have to actually pay a speeding ticket. Now, teenagers, y'all need to listen to this because you may get a lot of speeding tickets in your life and this is the one guaranteed way. My dad taught me this early on to ensure that you never have to pay a speeding ticket and it's this. Don't break the law. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Who would have thought that this is the way that that life works? So I get pulled over. I do get a ticket because I'm doing like 15 over in the middle of town. And I start talking to the cop about Jesus. Jesus. And at first, I think it's going pretty well, but then we really get to the point of decision where I'm kind of asking what he thinks is going to merit him salvation and what it would take for him to become a Christian and be saved from his sins. And he begins to tell me um, about basically his resume. He begins to tell me about his military experience, and he begins to tell me about all the ways that he served the public, including in several different capacities, and, and how, yeah, he's done some things that are wrong, but he's never really done anything that bad in his mind, and how his real lack of big atrocious sin and because of his contributions to society God is going to let him into heaven that's what he told me and don't get me wrong everything that he had done in his life is noble I mean we should admire we should appreciate people that serve in that capacity there's no doubt about that but no service or contribution can ever make up for disobedience I mean, imagine a soldier who disobeys a direct command, and when confronted for disobeying that direct command, their response is, yeah, but look at all the commands that I obeyed. Like, that's not the way that it works. It doesn't matter how many times you obeyed, because that's expected. That's the norm. That's the standard. What matters is the commands that we didn't obey. Well, with these Pharisees 2,000 years ago, they had become so infatuated with all the good that they had supposedly done, they'd forget about the problem with all the bad that they'd done. Self-righteousness had kind of blurred the way they saw themselves and the way they saw God. And maybe, for some of us, maybe that's us today. Maybe that's our struggle. We may not think that we're perfect, but we've definitely snarled our nose up to others in society. We've concluded that we're not really that bad. We certainly aren't as bad as so-and-so, are we? And as a result, we're kind of contemporary examples of Pharisees. And if that's you, and by the way, that has been me plenty of times. I have to fight against that even to this day. But if that's you, there are two things that I want you to remember. These are both in your outline if you're following along. I'll share them quickly and then we'll move on. Under letter A, all sin is equal. Write that down. All sin is equal. Now, when I say that all sin is equal, what I mean is that all sin is equal. But what I don't mean is I don't mean that all sin is equal. Y'all pay attention? Okay, you don't understand that. Okay, well, here's what I mean. Obviously, all sin is not equal, right? In that taking a gun and shooting somebody in the face is not the same as a toddler stealing a toy. Like, we all understand that. That's, that's written on our hearts. We get that difference. But every single sin, no matter how big or small we might think that it is, has created the same impenetrable barrier between us and God. All sin has created the same chasm that separates us from God. And no matter if your life contains some of the more grotesque sins or if it contains some of the ones that unfortunately are more socially acceptable, they all take the same measure of faith and repentance in order for us to be reconciled to God. So in that way, all sin is equal. Under letter B, the gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel is the great equalizer. What do I mean? I mean that the message that we cherish, namely Christ crucified for sinners, I mean that's the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, that message places every single one of us on the same spiritual level before God and that means that every single one of us is called to do the same thing, namely to repent and believe. So if you've murdered or if you've not murdered, if you've robbed a bank or if you've not robbed a bank, we all must come spiritually bankrupt acknowledging we have absolutely nothing to offer God, crying out to God in repentance and faith in order to be saved. The gospel is the great equalizer. It places every single one of us on the exact same level. So for that reason, there's no justification for a Christian to ever look down on anybody else. Jesus had to die the same death no matter what, which sets me up perfectly for the rest of the account. Not only does God's love draw all kinds of people, not only does God's love confront all kinds of sin, but now the third way, God's love works in our lives. God's love demands we admit our need. It demands we admit our need. Because look with me now at verses 12 and 13. It says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well, so this is Jesus responding, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus is responding to the Pharisees who can't understand, they can't wrap their mind around how Jesus, this supposed holy man, could be hanging out with derelict people. And Jesus' response is just classic Jesus, isn't it? I love it. He basically begins to draw a line in the sand, and he begins to divide the population. Now look, I know that the the Bible... And um, I know that this in particular makes us nervous in contemporary society. We, especially millennials, don't really like to be labeled, do we? Like, we shun labels. We don't like being categorized. We feel like it's not fair, whatever. And I get that. I totally get that. Politically, I do not have a home, okay? So um, I totally understand when you say, you can't label me, you can't fit me into a box, whatever. I, I get that. But Jesus absolutely labels people. He often says something like this, where he says something like, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either dead to sin or you're a slave to sin. You get to choose your camp. But what he's saying here is you either understand how much you need me or you don't. That's really the line in the sand that he's drawing. Look at how he continues, the last half of verse 13. He says, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, he's not saying that there are actually righteous people out there who don't need forgiveness for their sins, because that's what it means to be righteous. It means to be right in the eyes of God. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is is he didn't come to call the self-righteous. Think about who he's talking to. In other words, Jesus didn't come to mess around with people who don't think they need him. Jesus came and Jesus called and Jesus drew and and Jesus saved people who would realize how much they truly needed God. And by the way, when we think about The demographics here in Jefferson City, and we look at everything from level of education to average income to what the home dynamics look like to religious backgrounds. So you can just go down the list. That that single thing right there is one of the biggest hindrances for people in our community coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is acknowledging that you have an intense burning need for God. There's a documentary that is absolutely fascinating. If you're into documentaries and you enjoy that kind of stuff, or if you like history, um, and especially if you're interested in World War II, swimming in Auschwitz is something that you need to be aware of. Auschwitz was, of course, what I believe is a, really a group of concentration camps created by and used by the Nazis in World War II. They were utilized to systematically kill an estimated 1.1 million people in the 1940s, people including the Polish, people including the Soviet POWs, people including the disabled, the mentally ill homosexuals, of course, a whole bunch of Jews, and anybody else that the Nazis decided were a strain on society. They'd ship to Auschwitz, and they'd they'd kill them. But in this documentary, there were people that lived during World War II interviewed, and, and they expressed that Germans... And in particular, the Nazis were seen by many Europeans as the most cultured, reformed people in the entire world. And people legitimately believed that the German people were so cultured and were so what we would call kind of highfalutin, so far up in the pecking order, that they could never be guilty of doing the things that were rumored to be occurring in those concentration camps, namely the gassing and the burning of hundreds of thousands of people. And what was forgotten was that sin runs through the supposedly enlightened just the same as it runs through the common man. So we should never get in our minds that because of a certain level of education, because you've got a raise at work, because of whatever, that their need or our need for Christ is minimized. If anything, it might be intensified. See, we tend to think, oh, that poor drug addict... Man, they they need Jesus. They need Jesus so bad. And yeah, they do. But you know who rises to the surface in the New Testament as, as needing the gospel? It's those who think that they don't need the gospel. They're the ones who actually need it the most. So let me just say this before we move on. If you are in a position right now where you just don't really feel like you need God... Maybe somebody brought you here. Maybe you came just out of obligation. Maybe, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, whatever it could be. I would urge you to heed the examples in God's Word. The fact that we feel like we don't need God is the best evidence we could ever come up with, the best evidence we could ever muster to show how much we really do need Him. So let's begin to, to wrap this up and let's think about this. In this text, we've seen these three ways that God works in our lives. What are they? Well, first, in verses 9 and 10, God draws all kinds of people. Secondly, in verse 11, God's love confronts all kinds of sin. And then thirdly, in verses 12 and 13, God's love demands that we admit our need. The account shows us that Jesus was so unlike what was socially acceptable at the time, wasn't he? That's one of the reasons we love Jesus so much. I mean, he looked at Matthew, this tax collector, this traitor, essentially. I mean, somebody that that most of us would look down on if we were in the same culture. And he not only calls on Matthew to begin following him, but when the religious leader dumbfounded at Jesus' decision, Jesus says, hey, you don't get it. I came to call people just like Matthew. They're exactly what I'm going after because they desire to understand how much love God really has for them. Enough love to look past their past sins. Enough love to meet them where they are. Enough love to see them not as social untouchables, but to see them with value and worth and to desire for them to have the same opportunity to follow Christ as anybody else has. I was thinking about this this week and uh, we, like many of you, traveled this week, as I already told you, normally we're home for Thanksgiving, Shasta and I. Our families are both from central Missouri, so we are always in town, or at least, you know, in central Missouri for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and Easter, except for this year, because in May, my brother-in-law began pastoring a church in central Kansas, so he and my sister moved out there, and just two two weeks ago, my um, sister gave birth to their first child, my niece, who is named Carolina Jane. And you can go ahead and throw her picture up so everybody can see her. Yeah, I was, um, I was, uh, um, this is, this is true. The first time she ever, this is not really true. I, I said it's true. It's actually a lie. The first time she ever smiled was the first time I held her. That's what we're telling people. She did smile when I held her, and I'd never seen her smile before that, just met her, so I'm assuming that was the first time. I was really planning on having to, like, poke and prod y'all to do the awe thing, but you, you did it. Good job. I'm proud of you. So, um, so good job. But driving to Kansas and, and driving back from Kansas and watching all the people zip back and forth, going who knows where across the state, across the country, whatever else, I was thinking, you know, why do people do this? Why do they do this? It's not the food because you can cook a turkey wherever you are. It's not the football games, because those are broadcast all across the country. It's not just so that you'll have a day where you can lounge around and kind of hang out and and not really do anything and, 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 and take a load off your feet. That's not really it, because you can do that anywhere. The only reasonable reason that people drive or fly across the country to spend it with family members is because of love, right? I mean, that's it. That's the only reason. For you, whoever your family member might be, for me, it's my new niece. Well, of all the accounts... Not only Jesus calling Matthew to follow him, but the birth of Jesus with the manger and the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and the barn animals and the whole story, which we're going to be covering over these weeks, they exist only because of a great love that God has for his people. When you think about what God would do with this child, when you think about what, Christ, what God would allow to happen to Christ, his perfect son, and how he would not shield him from society, but that he would watch him be slain. There's no other reason that he would have sent his son to be born on Christmas and then to be slain on Good Friday except for love. I mean, let's face it. It's not like you have anything to offer the God of creation. So it's got to be love. There's no other way to get around it. It has to be love. So Christian, it's not only that God loves you, but it's you can know that God loves you because of what God has done for you. He sent his son. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross the whole time knowing that that was was the end. That was where he was headed to, to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, the lamb of God, the one slain for sin so that you could repent and you could believe and be reconciled to God. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. Now, maybe that has struck a chord with you this morning, and maybe at this point, you know, you you just acknowledge that up until this point you've lived for yourself, you've lived for the world, you've lived with your eyes and all types of things that really have no value whatsoever, things that are going to perish um, and that are never going to be significant. Maybe you've lived that life up until this point, but you hear that message and and God the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, is convicting your heart, and is calling you to repent and believe. My encouragement for you would to do that right now. Just right there as you sit just call out to Christ. Say God I want to follow you. I want to repent. I want to believe. I want to cast my faith in you and I want to begin following you. I want to do the same thing that that you called Peter to do that you called Andrew to do that you called uh, Matthew to do that you called all the disciples to do I just want to follow you. Now, if that's you, if you've done that this morning, if you decided that you want to do that, there are three ways that you can respond to that. The first way is with your Connect card. On the inside of your worship guide, that Connect card, you fill out that form with that contact information, that bubbles at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. You can drop that in the giving baskets in just a second when they come by. The second way that you can respond is at the back door. So on your way out, I stand at the back door, shake hands, say howdy to everybody. You can just reach out and say, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus. I want to hear more about what that looks like, and I'll contact you very soon to talk with you about that. And then the third way that you can respond is right now. As in just a second, I'm going to pray, and when I pray, um, the band's going to start playing, and we're going to stand and we're going to sing together. And as we sing, I stand at the connect table, located in the foyer, and if you want to step out into the aisle during that song, come back and talk with me. I'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to follow Christ. This is also the time in the service when we give you an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. There are so many different ways that God has blessed you. I know that there are so many different ways that God has blessed me. And when we come to this point and we pass the baskets, it's not that we're plugging you for money, it's not that, well, we really got to keep the lights on this month. It's not that uh, the kids are due for new curriculum and Freshwater Kids. It's not, it's not any of that. It's, it includes all of that. But, but really what it is, is it's us as the body of Christ giving because of the fact that God has given us so much. So we give as an act of worship. We go to the word every week as an act of worship. We fellowship as an act of worship. We sing as an act of worship. That's what giving is. Now, if you're new here, know that um, we don't expect you to give in any way. This is the time when the partners and regular attenders of Freshwater give their tithes and offerings toward the ministry of the church. Um, I'll also let you know there are four ways that we give here at Freshwater. The first being the giving baskets as they come by. The second being the giving kiosk located in the foyer where you can give by debit card. The third way being the giving box that is also located in the foyer. And then the fourth way being online at freshwaterjc.com. So I will pray, and after I pray, we're going to sing together. And during that song, the service hosts are also going to pass the giving baskets and get an opportunity to, to worship the Lord through giving. So allow me to pray for us. Heavenly Father and Lord, we're thankful for all that you are and all that you do for us. We know that we really have have nothing to offer you in return for everything that you've done for us, and we also know that our tithes and our offerings are just a small just a small picture of all the love that you have poured out on us. So. My prayer, Lord, is that we would give us people that are thankful for everything that you've done for us. I also pray, Lord, and and Lord, I am just so grateful for the accounts that we get to study in your word. We get to see you look at Matthew, this man that nobody would even want to talk to, look at. They despised him, and you being the God that changes lives and changes hearts, would cast your gaze toward this man that society had rejected, that Matthew would repent, believe, begin following you, that he'd have a party at his house and invite his friends over so that they could get to know you, and that, Lord, ultimately you would defend your decision to save him. And, Lord, I thank you for that so, Lord, my prayer is that as we're very soon going to go out into the world, remind us of what we've seen in this text. Remind us that you confront all different types of sin. Don't allow it to enter our heart that we're in some way better than another person because we haven't done this thing that they've done. Also, Lord, please remind us that that you draw all kinds of people to yourself. That, That the way we look, the way we act... The area that we live in, all of that is such a tiny picture of what the, the, the global kingdom looks like. And Lord, when we get to heaven, we're going to be rejoicing with people who look different than us, who have different background, who grew up in a different century than us. And Lord, I pray that we would cherish that diversity that is found in the cross. And then Lord, also, we know that we know that we must admit our need. So as we sing, some of us may still need to admit our need for you. I don't know. And for those that still need to admit their need, my prayer is that you would, oh, Lord, that you would pierce their heart. You do it with love, but that you would pierce their heart. You turn them from their sin toward you. And that for the rest of us, for those of us that have, have already went down that road and we're continuing down that road right now, we'd sing just as grateful, thankful people for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.